This episode is brought to you by Selby Anderson, the marketing group that helps businesses in complex markets win the future. Welcome back to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. This is the podcast for senior executives who want to find out how other businesses are building value through marketing. Last week on the show, I interviewed Joel Harrison, the erudite and celebrated editor-in-chief of B2B Marketing, and we were joined by the silky-toned B2B CMO, Georgina Gilmore. Now, we covered a lot of ground, but the core of the show was about how marketers are not being included in strategic initiatives like mergers and acquisitions. And honestly, I'm still shaking my head in disbelief that businesses wouldn't bring their best creative brains into the M&A process until the last minute. Now, if you're in B2B and you haven't listened, why not tee it up after you've listened to today's show? This week, we're talking about using partnerships and alliances to scale. To do that, I'm joined by co-host Russ Powell, and together we're interviewing Don Campbell, head of alliance and partner marketing at superfast growth technology company Endava. Now, they've got 12,000 people across the globe, and they specialize in software engineering and IT consulting. As we've been discovering as we record more and more shows on Unicorny, so many business-to-business organizations think marketing is limited to promotion. Spoiler alert, it's about a lot more than that. Businesses operating in complex markets often need to market their product or service with other organizations in order to meet all of a customer's needs. It's what my marketing hero Jeffrey Moore called whole product marketing in his seminal how-to for technology marketers crossing the chasm. So with the help of two experts today, we're going to look deeper into partnerships and alliances. We're going to be talking why, what, and how. If you operate in complex markets and you're struggling to gain traction or establish meaningful market share, partnerships just might be the answer to you winning the future. The core of today's conversation is about how Endava is using partnerships and alliances to scale and win the future. It's a subject we touched on in season one with Adam Morgan from Premium Credit, and he spoke to us about marketing through regulated intermediaries. Those are downstream partnerships. Today, We're talking about upstream partnerships, partnerships with service providers like cloud, payment service providers, and more. So over the next 30 minutes, we're going to get some context by learning about how the marketing business works in Endava. Then we're going to explore what makes a good partnership. We're going to look at marketing development funds, known as MDF, and Donald talks about how to balance multiple partner relationships. Be sure to listen out for what Donald has to say about partnering with competition too. That is, to my mind, a mind blower. But before we do any of that, let me introduce my co-host. Regulars will know Russ Powell. He joined me to talk to Ruth Connor earlier this year. Newbies need to know that he heads up specialist B2B tech creative agency, Sharper B2B Marketing. Now, Sharper's just three years old, but it already works with some of the biggest and the best in the business. So he's ideal to help me out today. Russ, hi. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. And it's lovely to also welcome our expert witness for today, uh, Mr. Donald Campbell, uh, Head of Alliance and Partner Marketing at Endava. So Endava is a 12,000 people strong digital transformation and software development company uh, founded in London in the year of the millennium, but these days is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. There you go. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Don, before we get stuck into the meat of it, I was blown away when, when we were researching this show that here's a company, a fast-growing technology company, founded in our very own London in the United Kingdom, and it listed in New York. What does that say about our ability to take businesses through and scale them onto public markets? 
It's a bit of a damning indictment, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a, a sad state of affairs, but you know, really good for Indava to be recognised in that shape. But in terms of how companies are fostered or grown here, it's a uh, you know, it's a it is sad, isn't it? Let's get stuck into some context anyway, uh, Don. Why don't you tell us, how did, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Not a direct route, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know many that were. You know, some people spring out of bed, like, marketing's what I want to do. For me, it was film. I, w- I did a film degree when I started wow. at university. I was really interested in that. I thought that would be my career. When I finished university and had a pile of debt, the first job I got was in insurance. And at insurance, I was asked to attend some events. And that was the first flavor of marketing, I thought. I really enjoy this bit. I love the public side of it. I got more involved with the web stuff and then thought, this is more my speed. This is absolutely what I want to do. Went back to school, did my SIM diploma, and then moved into marketing. Again, in insurance, but with a, a marketing focus. Okay, cool. So you're, uh, in your early career, when you were learning the basics, that came through the Chartered Institute, or was that on the job learning too? On the job. I okay. mean, the education is really, really useful, really helpful in terms of framework, but the learning has always been on the job for me. So it's always been almost via osmosis, being lucky enough to have some really good marketers around me as I was growing up too. In your time in marketing, do you think business's approach to it has changed? Yeah, definitely. Talking about promotion and that be a mindset of businesses, promote, promote, drive leads that way. Whereas marketing has evolved, I think, or layered into the business in a more effective way. So we're much more in contact with thought leadership, content driven. It's very much about engagement rather than, you know, banging down the door from a sales point of view, but from a how do we foster a relationship? So marketing has definitely evolved into that kind of sphere. I like that. And what about Endava? What were you able to tell us about how the marketing function at Endava is set up? Because as you may know, a lot of our listeners are not marketers. They're either CFOs or CEOs. And it's always nice to be able to set context of what does marketing mean? Sure. It's a big company, like a very big company, 12,000 strong. The marketing apparatus, all the people within there, it's cross-functional. So we have a brand comms team who are there to deliver the high-level profile for the company itself. And then within that structure, there's the demand generation team, which is what you might expect is there to engage, to create that awareness and conversation. Surrounding all of this is on the boots, lead generation teams as well, social media, quite a not overtly complex structure, but we all play into each other. Imagine it like a complex Venn diagram, but that's okay. how it kind of fits in terms of we deliver. Although you build product, you are a service company, right? We're services. So we refer to it as ideation to solutions. So okay. we're there to help solve problems for large enterprise organizations. So we're delivering technology for that. What that technology is, is up for grabs at the beginning in terms of what's going to be the best for the solution for the customer. But we, we see ourselves in that solution makers. Okay, so does the marketing team get involved in pricing and any of the other P's? Or obviously, we're going to talk about place today, and mm-hmm. clearly there's a promotional functionality there too. Does marketing get involved at all? Or A little bit. It has a say in certain things, but the areas, the way the business is built, think of it like a consultancy. You know, a customer is coming to us with a complex requirement, how do we solve this, the pain yep. points, and we're there to deliver that solution. So price does have a factor in that, of course, but that's much more to do with rates. It's more about the delivery of that solution, okay. how we then explain that through like some kind of narrative that we've solved this, yep. this problem and then deliver that. Um, and thinking now about the wider industry, not necessarily your specific company, but in an ideal circumstance, doesn't matter whether it's a product or service business, how would you define marketing's role? Do you know, I always think of it in terms of how we create a conversation. 
So we have an ideal prospect base or even existing customers. How are we generating or fostering a conversation with them? And what's that conversation about? So I always try and put myself in the shoes of a prospect and think, if we have a few minutes of their time, what are we saying to them? And that's where my focus of marketing is pushed through. Is like, what are we saying to them at the end of the day? What value are we trying to deliver for them? And that boils into what proposition we're going to do. So the function of marketing for me is to instigate and start that conversation and nurture it to the point where it's more than a conversation. It's an engagement where they need some support. How do marketing and sales interact? Yeah, what's the relationship like between sales and marketing at Endava? It's a healthy one. It's a good one. The other companies I work for, you can either have a friction between sales and marketing or, you know, marketing almost be like an add-on after the fact. At Endava, it is much more cohesive. You know, we're very much so a growth marketing organization. You know, we're there to help with the bottom line. And that's recognized by sales. So where we try and push our efforts, it's more meaningful for sales. So where we deliver account-based marketing programs, that is hand-in-hand with the sales unit. So we are developing our marketing plans with their sales campaigns. So it's quite interlocked. The engagement we have isn't all the way through. So there's a genesis of like, here's the base that we're after. We agree on that. Then we go off, we craft our plans, and we meet back in. We weave in almost like a um, an agile program delivery. We have sprints of like how well is a campaign doing. And are you doing a lot that's account-based, or are you doing broad brush? Or I guess kind of what you're talking about before, it's kind of the long and short of it. It's both, and it's a good mix for that. As our tool base, as our MarTech stack develops, we're able to do more sophisticated things with marketing. So yes, we have a, a broadcast program, goes out and trying to grab the leads or the engagement for that. And then we have a more sophisticated run of that where we're able to identify personas within organizations and be able to target them in different ways. So it's a mixture of both. Look, let's spin because we're here today to talk about P place. And I'm particularly interested in the discussion we're going to have because it's not that usual to find a service company that is building channel or that is building partners and alliances. Why would a business like Endava want to build a partner and alliance network? When it comes to alliance and partnerships in Endava, It's not that it wasn't a no-brainer. It's like we work with so many different technology vendors. We deliver so many solutions on these, you know, platforms all over the place. We try to remain agnostic. You know, we're consultancy-driven in that way. You know, we want to deliver the solution. The customer doesn't need to worry about the tech at that point. We just know that we can solve it. When we're creating this partnership with a vendor, it's got to be cooperative. You know, we have to have a relationship with that. It can't just be a... Uh, we'll open our address book for them or vice versa. It's got to be something more than that. But the reason for its creation is where we move into new territories or we are increasing our footprint in certain verticals, an effective way to do that is through partnerships. You know, it is a foot in the door. It's association. So it makes sense for us to do that. But doing it with the right partners is the tricky bit. And obviously, that's a big part of what I'm involved with. And how do you or do you differentiate between a partnership and an alliance? There's no hard and fast rule. It depends on what type of marketing. You can throw another one in there in terms of like uh, associative bodies. That That's something else that will come into the realm of this. Almost if you ignore the terms partner alliances, membership bodies, it's about a relationship you're going to have with someone that can help deliver a solution with you for the benefit of the customer. So whatever model that looks like, that's what we're interested in doing is delivering a solution for the customer and how we go about that. So some are more strategic than others. Some are just tactical. Some are short term. So going in with that wider scope of what does this meaningfully mean to us? What is we going to deliver for the customer is really important for us. So I tend not to try and compartmentalize them. It's just a case of we have a great relationship with Google or Amazon, whoever it might be. And that's the model we're going in with. How do you ensure that those relationships you set up are mutually beneficial no matter what shape they take? That's the tough one because you will have areas which are 
you know, hyperscaler, you want to be in, in the cloud world where you almost have to have a relationship with Google, with Microsoft, with AWS. And it's almost a, a fait accompli where you're like, well, of course, it's the assumed. But how do you make those meaningful? So you were very verticalized in terms of how we approach the market. So we have a very specific vertical proposition and we build that out with those partners. Going down and not to disparage in terms of a pecking order, but partners that are not those three large players fall into certain categories in terms of how we define what our story is with them. And this is almost stopping anything that we've done previously with them is understanding what our actual value prop is to our customer base. A tendency is to go down the vertical route with that, sometimes pan vertical, but it's neater for us to do vertical, and then building out what our story is with those. So it's almost on a case-by-case basis, but it does need a lot of evaluation to it. Something else that throws into the mix there is it's like the appetite the partner has to work with you. You'll have some who have channel models and they have a library of documents and then it's off you go to market and sell our tin. Fine, but we want to have a much deeper relationship than that. We want to go to market with them. We want to be seen hand in hand with them in the marketplace. And that to me is partner marketing because anything else you're just describing a service you deliver. And do you have members of the marketing team specifically dedicated to that partner marketing activity or is it kind of threaded across everything? It's threaded across everything. And again, it's evolving, you know, this continuous improvement side of things. And when you describe the team, you know, cross-function, the way we split our demand generation team is by territory and by industry. So each head of demand gen is responsible for a number of verticals in a certain geo. The partner element, which is me, kind of hovers over that a little bit. (laughs) But I'm there to try and plug into their teams as best we can. So say we're at a particular event and there's a big partner presence at that event. We want to make sure that we're synced on that. We want to show that we're going to, you know, do some cross-blogging across socials or something to leverage up and amplify, you know, that we are partners with whatever player it may be. So it's growing, it's changing a little bit, but mostly it's threaded in. I mean, we were chatting about acronyms before we hit record on this, but the biggest acronym in channel and partnership and all that kind of stuff is MDF. So how how is the MDF conversation approached in terms of what you look at with partners? Again, case by case for the non-marketers, it's marketing development funds. The MDF conversation, again, it's never a tricky conversation to have because it's very matter of fact, we're spending money to promote someone else's brand as well as our own. So it makes sense. You you co-opt that. So the way we approach it, it's almost always by a 50-50 split. So if you're going to ask for money, you need to match that money. So you need quite a defined plan or case when you go to them. Some partners are much more kind of stringent in terms of what they ask for in terms of detail. Some are not fast and loose, but give more leeway. They understand that the money down to the pence might not go exactly to the dot and something. But where we approach it is a case of we're amplifying both our brands. Therefore, it makes sense it's co-spend. So it's an easy request. It just depends on each one has a different process, some more cumbersome than others. What about measurement then? If you're working on joint campaigns, what kind of measurement metrics are you being asked to provide? It's a mix sometimes. The ones we would hold ourselves to account for regardless would be just in measurement engagement. So when I talked about HubSpot, talked about a, you know how people are arriving on our site or engagement, yeah. or whatever it might be. We look at those metrics, of course. And where we're crafting at the beginning a value proposition with the partner, we have an eye on what type of results we want to be seeing. And they have to be ambitious, but realistic. So revenue is a mean one, obviously, but that's so far down the funnel for us that it's difficult to say, right, we ran this activity. And because they're quite complex engagements, you're not going to get an answer straight off the bat. You know, you're looking at lead time six months or more. We look at other areas of it and something we're certainly getting much better at is around the nurture process. So we're looking at the almost like the intent 
data that were revealed through, you know, we're running a, a white paper over here and we're seeing some blog content over there or a podcast release and seeing the same eyeballs on those and drawing conclusions. So our KPIs inform our, our marketing process too, but they're the kind of ones we hold a contract to. From the partnership side, they want to see that too. Some are much more interested than others. They just want to see how many downloads do we get? How many attendees do we have? And that's fine. That's no problem. For us, it's more about their journey. You know, how far along are they on that journey? And that's what we're trying to bring up to um, when we review and report on. Donald's bang on the money here. It's a journey, not a destination. So you can't look at metrics from a single point in time and hope to get insight. What matters is how things trend. Now, many people dismiss what they call vanity metrics, but I actually think they can be sort of important. Well, at least they have a place because ultimately they're indicators of success, like listener downloads, numbers of attendees, eyeballs and that kind of stuff. They may not mean anything in their own right, but when you put them all together, they could be important indicators of progress. Now, I'd keep those kind of metrics probably inside the marketing team, but you know they are important. They're part of the journey, not its purpose, that's clear, but I wouldn't dismiss them out of hand. When it comes to partner marketing campaigns like the one Donald's talking about here, you need to keep your eyes on the horizon while also identifying success criteria for both partners. Put another way, you need to look at long-term benefit to both parties because that's where you're going to see the true value of a campaign when it comes to both brand and revenue. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical, and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com. You're listening to Unicorny with Dom Hawes, powered by Selby Anderson, the marketing group that helps complex businesses win the future. Coming up on the podcast, Don tells us how Endava sometimes partners with competitors uh, and gives tips on how to keep those kind of tricky relationships contained and mutually beneficial. We also discuss partnering with hyperscalers, what socioeconomic trends are going to affect business in the coming year, and why the next 12 months should be about innovation for marketers. But first, I wanted to ask Don how much involvement the marketing function has in finding new partnerships. And here's what he said. I'd love to say it's all on me. It's not. We're a team. We're always looking for new partnerships, but I hate the word strike a balance. It's okay to use it. <laughs> You've got to strike a balance because there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah, sure. You can only do as much as you can. So if, if all of a sudden we had got 10 times the amount of partners, we can't service all that. And that goes against almost the ethos of partner marketing for me is that you need that collaboration. And that means dedicated time for each one. It can't just be, oh, you're a tick box, you're not a partner of ours and you're not on our website and that's it. It's got to be a case of someone says this vendor would be a good partner for us and then it goes down to the why. Why would they be a good yep. partner? Is it just a short-term idea? Is it tactical? Is it strategic? Are they incredibly competitive with another partnership? Is it going to cause conflict? There's a lot of considerations to happen with these, but it's not just down to me. It'll be like, a think of it like a, a number of people having sure. stake in this and being able to say, well, please don't go down this route. It's going to upset ex-partners who's very good for us so but it's ultimately about capability right it's about being able to give best of breed solutions into the clients that's exactly right and it's, it's one of those things where you almost have a conflict where you want to remain agnostic you don't want to say we're we're all in google forget everyone else you want to say you know we have an ecosystem of partnerships here and that's going to deliver the best value 
But then conflicting to that, you've got to put some skin in the game. You have to have skilled resource to deliver these. You can't just say, I'm now a partner of Adobe or Backbase and not have the skills there to deliver. So there's the chicken and the egg scenario a little bit. You need to say, if you are going to be a partner, you're also committing to something too. You know, it's not just they accept you as a partner. You have to fulfill an obligation. There's a criteria to meet. So yeah, it comes in different directions. Is that commitment generally volume-based or is it volume by market or volume by region or a mix of all of the above? A mix of all of the above. So we're sector specific. So we have industry verticals. They're very informed in terms of the landscape that they're operating within. I don't go in and presume to be an expert. I rely on there for their expert value. And we have subject matter experts within those units to tell us this is a trend that we're experiencing or this is a partner that we feel we could really develop and do something really interesting with. And I'll pick on one where we have a, a really good one and it's marrying up two partnerships, in fact. And it's us, again, putting skin in the game to develop accelerators between these two platforms. And they're very complementary. And it's one of those that delivers something unique for us. So there's different ways to cut it up, but it's usually a mix. Building out that ecosystem, is that of both upstream vendor partnerships, downstream DISTI partnerships? Like how, how's that playing out at the moment? Really early to say. <laughs> you get to a point where we're thinking some partners are louder than others. And we put that down so that they have more of an appetite than others. But that does the other ones a disservice. It's just a case of it's a level of engagement. So, by the way, it's, it's all tech partners. So we're not distribution, not resellers. We're there to craft a solution on platforms. So almost all of our partnerships are that. They're all technology partners. So that ecosystem you will absolutely have, like in the payment space, we can't just be partners with a Stripe. It's got to be a Stripe and a WorldPay and Amazon Pay and Google Pay. And the wider our ecosystem for that, the better it is for the customer ultimately. But you've got to be mindful that you're not just selecting one and giving one more of your time than than the rest. It's got to be, you know, an, a natural ecosystem. It's got to be a balance. Something I was really surprised about when we did our pre-production meeting was that you include competitors in your partner plan too. How does that work? With great difficulty. <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy. The reason it sticks out, right? It's, it's a mindset, right? Why would you partner with a competitor? And it's not like we're actively looking for competitors to partner with. It's more opportunistic. If you know that there's an area sector or some area of solution that you would want to grow in, but you can't because there's a different type of footprint there already, there's absolutely a conversation to be had with a competitor. But be incredibly mindful that it's not going to be a long-term engagement necessarily. And you don't want to do it just for to win a one deal. It's got to be like there's got to be some more behind that to make it worthwhile because you're immediately opening yourselves to be a bit vulnerable. But again, none of this means that you shouldn't do it. It's just if we're very mindful of it and we know what the rules of engagement are and we have an agreement to that respect, then they can absolutely work and do really well. But being realistic, you know, you're not going to be send each other Christmas cards for the end of time. It's going to be a case of, right, this is an initiative. You know, we can cross-pollinate, hate that yeah. phrase, but we can we can do something and, yes, recognise they are a competitor, have certain things, be off-limit, be very transparent on how we're delivering things and keep each other honest because, you know, it's good for us both, but again, on a timely basis. I think it'd be good to, just to explore the relationship you're talking about with the hyperscalers as well, because all roads seem to lead back to the the holy trinity that sit at the top of the, the cloud platform. So how have you found it working with those guys and where do you see that developing for the future? The importance of the hyperscalers, it can't be underestimated for us. So whenever I talk about partnerships, I talk about what a good partner looks like. And that good partner is someone that is 
committed, there is a good level of engagement and a frequency of engagement and a result that you're delivering. And that goes both ways. So say we'll pick on Google, for example, whereas we have a fantastic Google capability as we do with Microsoft and with AWS, where we're committing to something, the account relationship we have, the partner account relationship we have is really important. They need to know that we're working hard to win business that absolutely benefits them. And it's that communication piece that is instrumental in, you know, waving a flag saying, hey, we're, we're doing this and we're doing it on your behalf as well as our own. And then that not just be a, again, back to the partner bit, is a good partner, you know, you're working together. It can't just be we're selling your services. It's got to be a two-way street. And that's be so important for us where we both have that skin in the game. We're both committing to something and we're both delivering something which is meaningful. And, you know, we're deriving a proposition for that. So whether it be for the payment world or the retail world, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And that be something that we were really clear with the partner that we are doing that for them and they are doing it with us. And once we have that kind of relationship and they they recognize it, you get more time with them. You're no you're not a tea and biscuit partner anymore. <laughs> not that we would ever want to be, but you are a partner who is actively, you know, helping them, their salespeople with their bottom line, you know, with their targets and vice versa. It's got to be that relationship for us always. And it doesn't have to be those big three. It's with all our partners. It's got to be that give and take, that to and from. The whole give and taking thing. You want to be at the the giver, you know, you, you want to be someone that's bringing something to the party and they want that too. And that's that's a good partner for us. Well, time's marching on. It's that part of the show where we like to ask our experts to think really about a quick and dirty pest. We look to the future. Don and Russ, with today's conversation as a lens, what advice would you be giving to marketers who want to continue delivering value to their businesses over the next 12 months, thinking about the following things? Russ, maybe you'd like to start. Think about partnership, alliances, and channel generally. What worries you politically about the next 12 months? The obvious one to talk about is is the economic. I'm going to be incredibly political and dodge the political question and talk about the uh, the, the E of the pest analysis, because I think we are, as we always are, in uncertain economic times, and those times are going to get even more uncertain as we go through this year. And I think it's really just scrutiny on that marketing spend on every pound, euro, dollar of MDF that comes through that is being used should be scrutinised anyway. It absolutely should. But the focus on that is going to be even greater, even tougher. And it's where the metrics and measures of success that we talked about before really going to have to drill into, okay, any MDF I get in, especially when it's co-funded, when it's match funded as well, you absolutely have to just prove that that pound is being spent in the best way possible. And like you say, there's lessons learned to it as well. If you spend a pound and it didn't deliver what you thought it would, why did that happen? And what do you do differently next time? And I think that's the only golden rule there is of marketing that if it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do something else. The justification side, absolutely. There's nothing new that we're entering into a brand new phase, you know, undiscovered waters. It's a case of, okay, the traditional mindset is to batten down the hatches, freeze the spend, blah, blah, blah. And that's Okay, that's a course of action. There are other ones, and I, I always feel a bit sorry because it's something I like to talk about a little bit is um, this idea of venture building, you know, fail fast. And when you're in a squeeze for budget, you don't want to go down the route of fail fast. You just like, don't fail at all. And you're like, okay, that so goes to tried and tested. You go back to very traditional models of delivering things. But this is where, I you know, sound like I drunk the Kool-Aid for Endava, this is where we do really well at. So we love innovations. The whole company's founded on innovation, how we deliver good solutions. How do we innovate in 
more frugal environments, shall we say. Okay. And what do you produce from that? Where we have enormous talent in-house and we have really good people and resources to pull upon. We can do that and we do that anyway. And where the economics absolutely or the economy has, has an effect on that, it has an effect very much so on the prospects and clients we're dealing with, where they would want to react to, you know, a less optimistic future. And what do we do? And this is, again, where we do really well is helping them innovate to become more resilient or to produce a solution faster, whatever it may be. But it's an opportunity for us. And there's an opportunity for anyone to go, how, how can I do this in a different way? You know, that forces innovation. So it's, I don't always welcome it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. please bring this despair across to us. It's a case of no, but it, it presents that opportunity anyway. Yeah. Look, I don't think we're going to dodge the political question because geopolitics is defining so much of what's going on at the moment. And I want to come back to partnerships and alliances here because as a global organisation, you must think about political uncertainty. I'm not really talking about our government, but we could be. But I mean, we've got a war going on in Ukraine. Uh, there are tr problems trading in Russia. China, are they going to come in and back, uh, and back the Russians? We don't know. Are they tempted to look at Taiwan? Where are the Japanese and the Koreans in all of this? I guess from the global lens on, surely partnerships and alliances must allow you to operate in some territories where you wouldn't necessarily want boots on the ground? Or is that not, isn't that not how you think? It isn't really how we think, although the reality is that, right? You know, and if you were to take a, you know, a textbook reason for why you would do channel marketing, it would be to enter a new territory. Yeah. It, it would be to enter a new sector. And you do that with association through a partner. But we, we tend not to take that approach. It's usually building on something you already have. So we have an amazing client base and we have a really good prospect base. And, you know, we're in a good position where even though we're very sales led, we're not overly salesy. You know, we're there to have a relationship with our clients and our prospects and genuinely help them get the best yeah. of what they're after. And that's by leveraging partnerships, it's by leveraging tech, people, whatever it may be. So, it, yeah, we, we don't tend to look at it down as like, oh, we're going to stay away from here or there. But in the same way, we don't blunder in, you know, ignorant to what it is. We're very mindful of these things, incredibly mindful. But that, that informs us as opposed to okay. stops us. We're on to S. What sociocultural trainers do you think are going to impact how we market and communicate using relationships over the next 12 to 18 months? Indav are a very mindful organisation. So we are approaching things from a point of view where we're, we want to leave the place in a better state than we find it, right? And that continuous improvement, that should be running through a course of action that we do anyway. And there are specific initiatives across the company that deal with that. And there are initiatives that are just naturally within our culture that are embedded into what we do. It goes into partner marketing too. So where we're fostering and developing a relationship with a partner, we need to have a matched ethos. You know, we need to know that we're on the same page when it comes to things. So the ESG side of things, it's front of mind for a lot of people for really good reason. You know, you can see people who are greenwashing or whatever it may be, you're like, you know, they're, they're ticking a box, but unless you have it to heart, then it's not going to make a big difference. That's a big area that we see, we feel we do very well in, we're mindful of when we have a partnership. I'm not going to do the tea, by the way, because you can't <laughs> off ask the tea question to technology specialists. So ignore that, or we could be here for another hour and a half. But on a positive note, what is marketing's biggest opportunity over the next 12 months? Like the business of marketing, if there's an opportunity that we need to grab, what is it? Yeah, I kind of feel ESG is is incredibly important, but I think it will relatively quickly become a hygiene factor. It will be what everyone has to do because it's the right thing to do. And it's like, what's your ESG agenda? Well, it's this, because of course it is, because that's what we should be doing anyway. The, the opportunity for marketing is is always as it has ever been, really. It's just about understanding people 
you talk about technology, we've talked about hyperscale, we've talked about platforms, partnerships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What it all boils down to is understanding what people want, how people make decisions and building the ecosystem around that to deliver what they need and what they want. I would echo that too. Maybe it not be one thing. I always think of it in terms of our ability to articulate our brand or think of it like our promise. You know, what are we promising to our customers and prospects? And the opportunity is always there. I guess it's just ways of how you elevate yourself in a really noisy marketplace. And of course, I'm biased in terms of partnerships. You know, we elevate with partners, but on our own in Davo, you know, how do we communicate what our promise is, that kind of ideation to solution in the best way for our customer? That's always our opportunity. And in the next 12 months, it's what tools do we use to do that? What people do we use? Where are we leverage things best? And it can't be with a, an agenda back here. It's got to be a real benefit to us and the customer to understand that we're in Dava and we're there to help with the solution delivery of whatever pain points they have. And the pain points are far and wide and complex, but we love that. <laughs> you know, that's what we're there. We're there to solve problems and we like that. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap. Thank you very much indeed, both of you, for a very interesting conversation. I hope to see you back in the studio sometime soon. Of course. Thank you, Tom. Well, that is the end of today's show. I really enjoyed recording this episode because I love Endava's story, but we did cover a lot of ground. So I'm going to try and condense our conversation into just a few minutes of key takeaways. And so point one is form partnerships with a customer in mind. Like it's marketing 101 to orientate yourself to the customer and the market, but you'd be surprised how few firms do. As Donald said, Endava forms alliances and partnerships with technology vendors to deliver customer-focused solutions. They don't differentiate between partnerships and alliances. They prioritise their relationships that deliver value to customers. Now, to me, that's orientation, and I think that's a model many can learn from. Point two, partnerships, by definition, share upside. So bake in the KPIs you both value before you start. Donal ensures relationships are mutually beneficial by targeting specific vertical markets, building meaningful connections, and then evaluating each partnership on a case-by-case basis. Point three, creating value through partnerships is a team sport. Once you've committed to a relationship, you need to resource it to achieve gain. Now, in Dava, partner marketing activities threaded right across the marketing team, as we heard today, with the demand generation team split by territory and industry, and partner marketing efforts are coordinated to maximize exposure and collaboration. That's how to do it. Point four, true customer orientation means you might have to do the unthinkable. Work with your competition. And Dava's partnership involve a mix of volume, market, and region with a focus on technology partners. To create a well-rounded ecosystem, Endava partners with multiple providers in the same space, ultimately benefiting their customers, but sometimes that's not enough. And the best customer fit might mean working alongside a competitor. Donald told us that partnering with competitors can be challenging, but it is possible with clear rules of engagement and transparency. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's the last unicorny we are airing for a little while. We are in the studio recording more, but next week, I'm delighted to welcome a popular marketing trek guest back on air. Yep, next week, we're speaking to Dynator's Steve Millman. Now, he blew us away on episode 22 
breaking the cookie jar when we talked about the implications of a cookie-less future. Steve told us the future was further away than many think, and boy, was he right. In the episode next week, we're going to be talking about data and ethics. What responsibility do marketers take in their organization? What is a good ethical base? Why are legal standards of data use not enough? And we cover so much more. But that's then, and this is now. And before signing off, I want to say a huge thank you to Donald Campbell for his time, insight, and contribution to the Unicorny Project. And of course, I'd like to thank Russ for being an epic co-host. See ya! Thank you for listening to today's show. Together, we're building a body of reference to make marketing work better for business. Now, it takes us eight to 10 hours to produce each and every episode of Unicorny. Please take the time to share, rate, and review us. Help us get found and help yourself at the same time because Unicorny is far more than a podcast. It's a community of leading marketing minds and pretty soon we're going to be running events too. If you're interested in joining our community, please get in touch by following the Unicorny page on LinkedIn or connecting to me on LinkedIn. My name is Dom Hawes, H-A-W-E-S. You've been listening to Unicorny with me, Dom Hawes, powered by Selby Anderson, the marketing group that helps complex businesses win the future. Unicorny is conceived and produced by Selby Anderson with creative support from One Fine Play. Nicola Fairley is the executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer. Kazra Feruzia is the superb audio engineer and editor and the episode is recorded at terminalstudios.co.uk thank you for listening and we will see you in the next one this episode is sponsored by selby anderson the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com.